Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome David Slutsky to the show. Professor Slutsky is a recognized thought leader in the field of vehicle-to-grid technology. Slutsky founded Fermata Energy with the specific intention of developing and commercializing vehicle-to-grid technology in order to make electric vehicles more cost-effective and the electric power grid more stable, as well as to provide large-scale energy storage to make the transition to renewable energy happen more quickly. He has earned the reputation of being a policy wonk and serial entrepreneur committed to preservation of sensitive ecological systems, protecting the long-term integrity of our biosphere, and working to solve the challenges of global warming. In addition to more than 30 years of experience as an entrepreneur, David served as a senior policy advisor at the White House and EPA during the Clinton administration. At the White House, he coordinated the International Task Force of the President's Council on Sustainable Development, where he focused his efforts on the environmental and labor implications of international trade agreements, such as the Multilateral Agreement on Investments. David, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. And yourself, Raj? David, I'm doing fantastic. Thank you for asking. David, where are you currently located? I'm in the third floor of my farmhouse outside of Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, been, work, <laughs> been working at home for about 30 years, have chickens on the farm. You know, remarkably, my life, at least in my day-to-day, hasn't changed much since COVID hit. It sounds pretty amazing. How's the weather out there? Today, it looks nice out. I'm still in my third floor office where I spend way too much time, uh, but at least I have some nice windows and it's not raining, so that's good. Well, it sounds bucolic. It's 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 a it's tough, but somebody has to live here, right? So I'm happy <laughs> with me. I do my penance by doing what I can. Absolutely. So, David, I like to open my show by asking my guest the following question: If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? Uh, that's an always an interesting question. Um, well, I guess I have an odd background. Is probably uh, fair game. Um, I'm. I've been teaching for the last 20 years at the University of Virginia. I've taught in the Commerce School, the Architecture School for 11 years, and now the Engineering School for nine years. But I'm actually the only trained philosopher on any of those faculties, I believe. Uh, So my background as a philosopher, I think, has been very germane to my professional career. Uh, But it is something people don't usually expect, particularly since I'm in a high-tech industry and uh, and I do uh, now teach in the Engineering School. Well, I'm a liberal arts guy myself, so I'm a big fan of that specific area. But how does that translate into those three particular schools? Well, in, in the first two, I basically taught some war stories from earlier stages in my career, each of which uh, illuminated relevant topics to business students and then again to urban planning students. 
my role in the engineering school is very different. Uh, UVA somewhat uniquely has embedded in the engineering curriculum uh, a requirement that students uh, take non-traditional courses specifically designed to help them understand the relevance of public policy and economics on their professional careers as engineers. And given my background, um, I'm well suited to kind of embed those themes into an, an engineering curriculum. You know, that sounds really forward-looking of UVA. I'm familiar with some of the programs here locally, and I don't know of any program that really does that intentionally. Can you perhaps shed some light onto why UVA decided to do that? Well, I wasn't here at the time they developed this particular component of the curriculum, but back in the 70s and even more so in the 80s, engineering schools recognized that their students were going out into the world knowing a great deal about the technical dimensions of engineering, but they didn't necessarily do well uh, as practitioners. And there was a conclusion reached across the country in engineering schools that they needed to uh, to spread the uh, the subject matter around a little bit. So they let students typically start taking a few electives in the humanities or in more liberal arts disciplines. UVA took it a little bit more seriously and decided to bring this alternative faculty inside the engineering school. And so they brought entrepreneurs and public policy practitioners, both of which describe me, into the faculty to teach um, the relevance of entrepreneurship, uh, the relevance of, of economic reality to uh, developing engineering and technology. And they also wanted to have people who understood the relevance of public policy um, to help engineers understand that they're subject to regulations and they need to understand that a regulatory ecosystem, uh, particularly if they're going to be entrepreneurs developing new technologies, they need to understand what they're up against. So it reminds me, I've been in the technology industry for about 10, 12 years now, I had my own software company for a while. And it reminds me, if I think Steve Blank says, you know, get out of the building and get amongst your users, it kind of, you know, it kind of reminds me of that a little bit. I, I think that's a fair assessment. And I, and I think it served UVA well. Um, you know, they're, they're solid in the, in the disciplines of, of engineering, but I think they generally are re respected as somewhat unique and certainly excellent in teaching this other dimension to engineering. And I think their engineers are very effective entrepreneurs as a result of it. Well, I appreciate you sharing that background. Now, switching gears a little bit, can you give me an overview of Fermata Energy? Sure. Um, I started the company about 10 years ago, and being the philosopher that I am, I started it with two specific intentions in mind. Um, I Number one, it's a modest goal. I wanted to disrupt the auto industry by accelerating the transition to uh, electric vehicles. And I also wanted to tackle the electric power industry by enabling a more rapid transition to renewable energy uh, for grid power generation. And what's interesting about those two intentions is that they intersect at a technology that's come to be known as vehicle to grid, or I like to call it V to X, because it's not just the grid that, uh, that engages with it. And so Fermata Energy is a vehicle to grid services provider. And uh, you might ask, you know, how does that affect the, uh, the number of EVs out on the roads or the number of uh, wind turbines that are uh, being built? And I think the biggest obstacle to scale adoption of uh, EVs has historically been that there's a perceived uh, range problem. 
I don't think that's true anymore. I think most owners of electric vehicles are very comfortable with the amount of range the vehicles have. There's plenty of, of fast charging infrastructure for when it's needed. I've been driving pure EVs myself since before the Tesla Roadster existed, and I have never charged anywhere but at home. So I think most EV owners start to, to figure that out quickly. The, the reason that the EVs are somewhat slow in emerging on the scene is because you pay a premium a little bit to have an electric vehicle. But what people do when they buy an electric vehicle or any vehicle is they think they buy it to drive, but in fact, they buy it to park because that's what people do with their vehicles on average uh, 95% of the time. So if an electric vehicle could earn money while it was parked, now that starts to disrupt the total cost of ownership value proposition of an EV such that they theoretically should fly off the shelves. And I think you'll see that happening in dramatic fashion in, in the very near future. On the grid side, the biggest obstacle to scaling renewables is not the cost of uh, generation. Uh, wind and solar, they make electrons more cheaply than uh, the nuclear power or coal. The challenge to scaling renewables is they're intermittent in, in their generation. So you need to have massive energy storage designed into the grid. And we didn't design our grid that way because it wasn't needed with traditional generation. So um, places like California are, are really pushing through, through mandates, through subsidies, through everything they can throw at the problem, trying to expand the storage capacity uh, in the grid. But what's interesting is that there's way more than is needed in vehicles if they were electric. An illustrative example, um, if you took just the last six years of Nissan Leafs sold in the United States, um, it's not a widely selling car, it's a popular EV, but they maybe sell 15,000 units a year as compared to the, um, the Versa or the, uh, one of their other big selling cars might be 200,000 units a year. And, and if you just take the last six years of Nissan Leafs, and some of those older ones are 24 kilowatt hour battery packs compared to the current models, which are 62. But that blend of vehicles, not very many of them out there, those vehicles are equal in energy storage capacity to two times the entire stationary energy storage industry in the United States. And that's just a small amount of electric vehicles. As we scale deployment of electric vehicles, I think you're going to see that is the energy storage solution. And what else is interesting about it is that most of that stationary storage industry is built around batteries that had to be purchased for this single purpose of providing uh, um, storage to the grid. But electric vehicles are paid for by the electric, uh, by the driving duty cycle, the logistics duty cycle. So the batteries are kind of free in an electric vehicle. So they're very cost-effective solution to the energy storage problem that has been holding back scaling of renewables. So that's what the gist of what Fermata Energy does is it, it provides vehicle-to-grid services uh, to the marketplace. Now, you might say, well, what exactly is that? Because it's not widely known and, and widely used. In order to do vehicle-to-grid, you need three things. You need first a bi-directionally enabled vehicle. And at the moment in the U.S., uh, it's basically the Nissan Leaf, uh, also the Mitsubishi Outlander, but that's a hybrid, so it's a smaller battery and not as relevant. Um, there are multiple other uh, car companies that are bringing bi-directionally enabled vehicles 
to the U.S. market uh, in the next couple of years. So they're going to be everywhere. But for now, there's the leaf and, you know, there's thousands of them out there. Uh, the second thing you need is a bidirectional charger. And for various reasons, that charger needs to be off board the vehicle for now. And it should be DC power. And there are lots of single directional DC chargers that are out there. But um, until March of this year in the U.S., there were no UL certified bidirectional chargers available. Um, Fermata needed a charger a number of years ago. There really weren't any on the market that we could scale our business with. So we did our research and found a small tech startup. There was a spinoff from Virginia Tech called PowerHub. And we engaged with them to develop a charger for us. And then a few months later, we just acquired that company. And they have created the first UL9741 certified charger in the world uh, last March. And they're working on uh, some additional charger options. But we're also working with several other charger companies around the world who have similar technology, are now suddenly interested in bidirectional uh, technology, and we're working with them to bring those chargers to the U.S. market. So there are going to be plenty of cars, but there's enough now. There will be plenty of chargers that are bidirectional, but there's at least one right now. And then you need software to be able to have the car talk to the charger and have that system talk to different, what I like to call grid-facing revenue opportunities. So you can use your uh, bidirectional vehicle and charger while it's parked, for example, to manage your uh, your office building's electric load and do, do uh, what's called behind-the-meter demand charge management. And what that is is it's a way to reduce the, the commercial electric bill by backfeeding uh, energy into the building during times of peak load so that that load doesn't have to all come from the utility and therefore you can save money on your electric bill. There are utility-wide load peak programs in many parts of the country that you can also participate in. There are grid-level commercial opportunities. They're called uh, wholesale ancillary services. Um, a popular one for the EV market is something called frequency regulation, and it's just a, a market mechanism that uh, manages the the entire grid to keep it at 60 hertz in the U.S. or 50 in parts of Japan and Europe. All of those activities that you can do with a bidirectional vehicle and a bidirectional charger can potentially earn money. Uh, in addition to earning money by participating in a market activity like I just described, just the fact that the vehicle can discharge itself into a building gives bidirectional or vehicle-to-grid technology a value stream known as resilience. Uh, a lot of people pay for backup power. And in fact, when Fukushima happened in Japan back around 2012, the, uh, the folks at TEPCO, the largest utility in Japan, and Nissan got together and developed a vehicle-to-home program, hoping that uh, customers would be able to deploy their Nissan Leafs as a backup power source uh, during times of uh, power outages. That same idea is applicable in the U.S. market for sure, uh, particularly with some of the events that are going on in the PG&E service district in California these days. Plus, with you know climate change, we're having more severe hurricane events and therefore more frequent and long-duration power outages. So having resiliency as a value stream 
from the technology is also important. And you can do that with a bidirectional vehicle and a bidirectional charger. So in a nutshell, not that I ever do much in a, in a nutshell, Raj, but what Fermata does is it provides vehicle to grid services uh, to customers. And just this year, we started to you know be commercial and starting to scale up our business finally. I appreciate you sharing that. I'm not going to skip over the fact that you said um, these were modest goals. So I've got that in mind. <laughs> <laughs> my tongue but, is um, in my cheek, yes. I, <laughs> I'm sure it is. Before we move on, Fermata, it's a very unique name. Where does it come from? Well, my, my youngest child, my son, Isaac, is a, a, a classical uh, and jazz trained musician. And a Fermata is actually a music notation. It's kind of uh, an, a, a half circle, like an eyelid with a, a single dot under it. And when you're reading sheet music and you run across a fermata, it means there's a pause for an undetermined duration subject to the discretion of the of the artist. So he said fermata is a perfect name, Dad, because it sounds kind of cool like Ferrari, but he said it also is what you're doing. You're taking a pause and kind of rethinking uh, a couple of major industries and he said, I think it's an apt name. And I agreed. And it's been, that's been our name since uh, since I formed the company 10 years ago. Well, thank you for that education. I have a daughter that plays bassoon and two that play piano. And now I can be smarter in front of them. So I appreciate that. And my son will be pleased to have his, uh, his, his creativity invoked. <laughs> Earlier in the conversation, you mentioned the three challenges. You mentioned the bidirectional vehicle. You mentioned the bidirectional charger. And then you mentioned the software piece. Can you tell me specifically, you know, the three challenges here, which ones or if not all is Fermata addressing? It's a great question. So you need all three of those, uh, as you call, some people call it legs of the stool to do vehicle to grid. We're not going to make a car. And, um, and so what we did is looked for a strategic partner who was interested in vehicle to grid. Turns out Nissan was the natural partner and uh, they made an announcement about a year and a half ago that there were partnering with Fermata to develop vehicle-to-grid in the U.S. They announced at the L.A. Auto Show that they were going to do a demonstration of our technology at their U.S. headquarters outside of Nashville. Um, so we've kind of got the car taken care of, and they are the only bidirectionally enabled fully electric vehicle in the U.S. today. But ultimately, we'll work with every OEM as they bring bidirectionally enabled vehicles to the market. Um, we're agnostic as to vehicle partner, although for right now, Nissan's the perfect partner because they're the only one. And they've actually, frankly, been very good to work with. They, they believe in the technology. On the charger side, we acquired a charger company to make a charger for us because no one else would. But we're now in negotiations with some and have contracts with other charger companies who will be bringing bidirectional chargers to the U.S. And so in a similar manner to the vehicle, we are charger agnostic. We don't plan to be in the charger business, but we do have some chargers now because we needed them and no one else would make them. But as they become uh, more and more available, uh, we'll work with any bidirectionally enabled charger uh, that will work. And where we've really probably focused more of our attention is on the software development to enable the interoperability between the vehicle, the charger, and the different grid-facing monetization pathways for this technology. But as a company, in addition to on the long haul, us being a software company, if you will, or a software-centric company, we're experts on what you can do with this. We know what monetization pathways are available today, which ones will be available in the future after some regulatory intervention. 
we are working on the regulatory program to make sure that you know the, the market catches up with the technology. So I guess the, the answer to your question is Fermata has relationships to provide the vehicle and the charger. We have our own proprietary software and we're the operators. We're the integrators. We're, as I think I may have said earlier, we're the Android of vehicle-to-grid technology. That's, I think, where we sit. David, I appreciate the clarification on the three legs of a stool. You said rethinking the industry, or you know, he mentioned rethinking. You started by saying V to X. Can you give some other examples of what X might be? Well, so there's. I like to think of the technology as unlocking a series of value streams inherent in a bidirectionally enabled electric vehicle. The different customers could be the building owner, because as I mentioned, it can provide backup power for them or resilience. But you also can do that service that I described a little bit before, this behind the meter demand charge management activity. That's applicable right now, mostly at commercial sites. But you can make a lot of money uh, dispatching your uh, energy into the building at at critical times. And that's where the software comes in, because it needs to understand the different market applications of an available vehicle with dispatchable power and optimize the revenue generating capacity of, uh, of that activity. So your customer could be yourself because of resilience. It could be your building owner because you're shaving something off of their electric bill. It could be the utility directly where the utility is trying to solve one of their many pain points. Their pain points can include, uh, they certainly often include load challenges, uh, but it can also include volt and and VAR management and congestion management and a number of other uh, services that this technology is capable of providing. In addition to the the building and the utility, there's the grid itself, which is kind of a layer that sits above the utility. And the the grid operators are some kind of uh, an organization comprised of membership from the different utilities. Uh, the, The largest a grid operator in the U.S. is called the PJM, and it's in the Mid-Atlantic region. It runs from Chicago to New Jersey and down to actually a little bit of North Carolina. And uh, Fermat is a full member of the PJM. We're a curtailment services provider in the PJM, and we've been able to successfully take multiple vehicles in different locations in a city uh, and aggregate those and participate those aggregated vehicles into a wholesale ancillary services market at the grid level. In this case, it was frequency regulation. So when I say V to X, you know, people talk about V to G, and that is the G stands for the grid. And one could technically argue that the grid includes everything from your outlet and the wall back up to uh, the, the grid operators themselves. But it's a little confusing, and I don't think the language of this industry is, is settled. Uh, but vehicle-to-grid, as I think of it, is really participating at grid-level uh, market applications. Vehicle-to-the-utility uh, to uh, is another option, and then vehicle-to-building, or V-to-B, is another option. And then there's V-to-home, or V-to-H. So we just call it all V-to-X, and that's really what we do is, is all of that. So let's stick with the vehicle for a, mim- for a minute here. You know, you spoke about the Nissan Leaf, which I'm familiar with. We're talking about passenger cars I've heard some conversations about school buses and public transportation, too. Are you doing any work in that area? We are. Um, there's, there's actually discussion about using everything from golf carts and forklifts to passenger vehicles 
transit buses, school buses, and over-the-road big-haul trucks. And all of them will, I believe, and I hope over time, electrify in terms of their, uh, their technologies. Some sound better than they really are. Let's take the electric school bus. Uh, everybody's excited to see their kids not having to breathe uh, the product of, uh, of, of diesel fuel. But, and, and it's true that school buses have a, a duty cycle that does align nicely with some of the load challenges that the utilities are experiencing. So school buses are not very often driven in the summer and in the summer in the U.S. is when it's hot. And that's when utilities typically suffer uh, their, their biggest uh, load challenges. There's also time of day issues and school buses are typically done and back at the, at the school early enough to be able to help shed some of the late afternoon or early evening load. That said, one of the challenges of the school bus application, let's take a typical school bus. Um, a diesel bus might sell for, let's say, $150,000. An electric version of the same bus is at least another 200000 So that delta is pretty steep. The battery pack you'll get with that sort of base case is about 120 kilowatt hour battery pack. Well, two Nissan Leafs are 124 kilowatt hours. So, and they're not a $200,000 problem. So I think that the school bus application, it, it looks good on the surface and it has merit, no doubt. Um, you can pull a school bus up uh, to a critical location and dispatch power and that has real value. But I got to tell you, I think as passenger vehicles become ubiquitous and they are bidirectionally enabled, I think you're going to find that that's the, the, where the real impact, the real scaling of this technology and becoming relevant uh, is going to occur. Transit buses have a different problem. They're supposed to be used as much of the time as possible. And that runs contrary to having them available to be stationary, to dispatch power into a different market application. Similarly, over-the-road uh, big-haul trucks you know, while they're out de delivering their product or traveling from town to town to do that, they're not in a situation where they're going to be able to provide much uh, value. While they're sitting around parked is when they can provide most of these service values, and they're not supposed to be parked. Passenger cars, by contrast, are almost always parked. You get up in the morning and you take your fully charged leaf or whatever vehicle you've got, and you drive it to work. Maybe you burn through three, four, five kilowatt hours of your battery storage. And then you park it at work for hopefully not more than eight hours, but typically more than eight hours pre-COVID. And you're then you drive it home, or maybe you stop and get a gallon of milk on your way home. And so you've burned five kilowatt hours. The point is cars are almost all the time parked. And when you're driving them, they're not usually discharged that much. So their passenger vehicles are really the optimal participant in these different market applications. The challenge is going to be to get scale and for that to happen, we're, you're going to need to see some early deployments where money has been made. And so what Fermata Energy is doing is our first deployments are with commercial customers deploying at commercial sites that have very high demand charges. And they're typically fleet vehicles. Uh, many of them are municipal fleets. Some of them are commercial fleets. But they're vehicles that are driven around intermittently during the day, but parked a lot of the time. And there's generally a couple of vehicles back at the, at the base that are there almost all of the time. And so there is going to be dispatchable capacity throughout the day for us to, to leverage. So I think once you get a couple of uh, good case studies out there, 
that talk about how much money you can make with this technology, I think you'll start to see it really take off. And we're waiting for a case study to be issued uh, in the next month or so that actually describes one of our first commercial projects where we, in effect, demonstrated that with a Nissan Leaf, we can make $10,000 a year. Uh, That's a pretty remarkable statement, but it's true. And in fact, in some cases, we can make $12,000, dollars $14,000 a year with a Nissan Leaf. You're talking about a free car and a free charger after a few years. That's very disruptive technology. And that case study is of one particular use case, one particular market application. There are, as I mentioned, multiple market applications, each with different value streams. And they, many of them can be stacked upon each other. And with a good software system and a good operator who's really studied the market applications well, they can optimize the revenue that the vehicle can earn. So I, I do believe that um, scaling will happen, and I think it will happen with passenger vehicles, and there will be more than enough uh, dispatchable capacity from uh, a, a rapidly expanding electric vehicle fleet to not only help stabilize the power grid as it exists today, but very importantly, to also stabilize the impact of all these new electric assets charging off of the grid. Uh, you know, people have to keep in mind, it's great to have everybody switch to electric, but now we've got to look at what does that do to the infrastructure? It's probably going to be the biggest expansion of kilowatt hour activity in the last 50 years or more of the power grid. And if everybody was on their own and they came home at five o'clock and plugged in at the same time as everybody else, you'll get these bizarre spikes in the system load and the utility operators are going to have big challenges. But alternatively, if if all these vehicles were bidirectional and the charging and the uh, revenue generating were managed by an operator like Fermata Energy, now we can protect the grid, we can protect the batteries, and we can generate the optimum amount of income for the participants. And and it'll also offset uh, the the potential risks associated with scaling deployment of electric vehicles. So I I think it's a a fascinating technology, and I do think it's going to take off. But to sort of in a very long-winded way answer your question, I think you're going to see its true scaling happening with the passenger vehicles. And those chargers are not going to be the fast chargers by the side of the highway or distributed around town. Those are for intercity travel or opportunistic charging when needed. The vast amount of charging that will take place will be at home or at work or at a public parking space. And as those chargers end up being lower power bidirectional chargers, it's a pretty good, pretty cost-effective uh, infrastructure build out and it will satisfy this uh, th- this market. You know, you mentioned three things here, re- revenue, duty cycle, and fleet. And early on, you gave a statistic regarding the number of Nissan Leafs out there. Lyft, the company, recently made an announcement that by 2030, they want their entire fleet to be all electric. And as you were speaking, my mind was kind of walking through the scenario of, you know, if that does come to fruition, that's a phenomenal opportunity for, you know, a company like yours, like Formata Energy, to get involved and essentially, it sounds like, solve a huge grid problem. It is a huge potential grid problem, and there already are existing challenges that the grid's experiencing. And this vehicle-to-grid technology, in my opinion, definitely is critical to solving those challenges. But you bring up an interesting point, Raj, the the the, uh, the Lyft model, where 
a vehicle is used uh, by an individual uses their own vehicle or someone owns a vehicle and they lease it to a driver to go around and pick up passengers. There are plenty of vehicles being used to pick up passengers from Lyft and passengers from Uber. And some of them are also in a network where they can do a parcel delivery, a last mile parcel delivery uh, service for another customer. And I think what you'll see is that with vehicle to grid technologies coming online, we now add a new participant in that ecosystem, and that is the grid as a customer or a series of customers. And I think what gets interesting there is that with all these different use cases, if you think of a vehicle now, instead of a single purpose uh, entity, that is, I think the purpose is, is parking because that's what people do with it, but they think they buy the car to drive it. But in fact, now you can think of a vehicle as a reservoir of uses, and there will be multiple customers that will have a high value interest in utilizing that vehicle for a discrete task at a particular time. And vehicle to grid uh, operators like Fermata will manage those commercial opportunities and dispatch the, the, the available capacity to the different uh, customers that need it at different times. And I think you will find emerging very quickly a new vehicle ownership model in this country. Um, good example is my <laughs> aforementioned musician. He moved from New York to Nashville. He and his wife had no cars because they lived in Manhattan. When they moved to Nashville, he said to me, Dad, do you think we should get one car or two? And I said, well, what if your apartment complex had a small fleet of Leafs just sitting there that, as a building amenity that you could uh, take out uh, when you needed it to run to the grocery store or whatever your, your other use of a vehicle was? Would you get one or two vehicles? He said, well, we'd only get one and I'd pay more rent to have that which I thought was really interesting. And I probed further and he said, and, and he's in his early thirties. He said, my generation dad doesn't care about cars. We find them to be a nuisance. They're, they're a payment, they're insurance, they're upkeep. We just want to go from place to place. So we're more of the Uber generation, if you will. Uh, my generation, of course, I'm an old guy. Uh, our vehicles were kind of part of our brand identity in our, uh, in our social circles. They determined who you were to some extent. But I think that's going away. And I think you're going to find shared auto models becoming the wave of the future. I think you're going to see companies owning these assets. Interestingly enough, those assets have as their primary value stream, not the logistics duty cycle, but perhaps the different grid facing revenue generating opportunities. So you might find that uh, utilities end up owning vehicles and chargers and then they rent out the uh, the use of them uh, to different purposes but all that will be a story yet to be told but my instincts tell me that's a direction we're heading to again a, another long-winded response to your observation about uh, about lyft no of course and the model you mentioned with the apartment complex reminds me of the zip car model and i have this vision um that cars will eventually be, just become what i call personally a cdv which is the I've named a content delivery vehicle and the content could be a person, a package or anything, you know, along those lines, especially with the advent or the, you know, the future introduction of autonomous vehicles. I think it's all going to be about content and it could be advertising while you're in there or the person itself. So I totally see where you're going with that. I'm going to switch. I would just, Raj, I would just modify your, your, your characterization from content delivery vehicle, which is a nice acronym, but, but dispatching uh, electric power, or energy into the grid is, is a little bit odd as a content. 
I, that's why I use the phrase reservoir of uses, but it's the same theme. It's that these vehicles will have, they'll be repurposed, thought of differently, and probably have very different ownership models. I appreciate that. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit, going back again to the modest goals, you know, the why behind what you do, why did you start for Mata and what keeps you going? Um, that's a good question. I, I guess I would say it had, my motivation derives a little bit uniquely. Um, I was trained. I was at the University of Chicago for for eight wonderful years, a, a wonderful intellectual environment, studied philosophy, uh, thought I was in heaven while I was there. It was a great experience. But I also developed a pretty deep commitment to some of the ideas that I developed there. Uh, didn't finish my dissertation, still plan on it when I retire someday. But the topic has a lot to do with, I asked the question, how did we allow ourselves to get into the biospheric crisis that we're experiencing these days. And I argue that a lot of that has to do with the way in which we, particularly in Western societies, conceive of the self as an autonomous entity. And so we are willing to discount the adverse impact of human action because it's now a cost being borne by others. If we had a different idea of self where we thought of ourselves as having common identity with everyone and a shared problem when there's a problem, and therefore we would seek a common solution. I think that's a much better, uh, a much more sustainable approach to uh, the identity of self. And so I, I spent most of the, most of my professional life pursuing opportunities to express that, uh, that underlying theme. Uh, early on uh, in the business world, I developed a process tool uh, for the real estate industry to help them identify and address uh, hazardous waste problems. Uh, I, de I developed a, this process tool called the Phase One Environmental Site Assessment, and I wrote Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and a number of the major lenders' first environmental policies. And my goal in doing that, my intention, was to enable the private sector to now take on this common, commonly owned problem of, of legacy hazardous waste, look for it, and clean it up by leveraging some powerful in environmental laws that had recently then come into existence that imposed liability on the real estate industry in particular uh, for hazardous waste. So that whole uh, entrepreneurial experience earlier in my life was, was an outgrowth of this, this underpinning of philosophy. Similarly, I served in, in government. I worked uh, at the EPA and then later at the White House during the Clinton administration as a C senior policy advisor. The work I did there was related. I worked on um, uh, something called the Multilateral Agreement on Investments. It was a free trade agreement that I worked to squash because it had very disruptive negative impacts on developing countries with respect to their ability to put in place labor and environmental protection. So again, this underlying theme of being committed to, uh, to trying to protect the environment and, and, and protect people uh, drove my, my, my political career, if you will. Um, and then later, uh, I developed a, an environmental consulting firm, which is still around 20 years ago, and that supports the U.S. EPA largely uh, on helping the EPA administer its Superfund law in a way that doesn't just end up with cleaning up hazardous waste sites, but allowing them to be cleaned up and reused. So again, there was a central theme to that activity, in that company, which has to do with protecting the long-term integrity of the biosphere. Probably the most significant undertaking by far is Fermata. And, it, you know, it's cocky to say, oh, I'm taking on the two largest industries in the world and we're going to disrupt them, which 
you know, I'm not going to do it by myself. There's a whole ecosystem of participants in this potential market that will emerge. Vermont is just going to be one of them. Um, there are several other players out there right now doing it in their own way. But I'm, I'm certain it will be a huge uh, opportunity and the disruption will occur. And my role in it is to try and adv- move the ball down the court, is to try and advance understanding of what could be done here, how this technology can be utilized to enable the transition to renewables on the grid, to enable an accelerated transition to electromotive uh, technologies. And if I can you know, contribute even a, a little bit to that dynamic, I will feel that I've you know, left something of a legacy behind that makes me feel that my time on earth was, was well spent and, and, and deserved. So to answer your question directly, I'm driven by a need to establish purpose. I I need to have been relevant. That's important to me. Maybe that's uh, narcissistic, but that's that's how I feel. And the manifestation of that, in my case, is a deep commitment to the long-term protection of the biosphere, to recognize things that are disruptive and problematic, and then to seek solutions that will try to mitigate that harm in a way that's you know productive long after I'm gone. So that is by far the primary. Uh, objective or motivation, rather, for doing Fermata. And I'm an old guy. I'm turning 65 in a week or so. Um, I, you know, there's a reason entrepreneurs are usually in their 20s and 30s. Uh, there's two reasons. One, they have boundless energy, which old guys like me don't have. And they have no idea all the things that can go wrong. Uh, sadly, I've had most of them go wrong through my different entrepreneurial endeavors. So uh, for me, uh, it's an awful lot of effort to do what I'm doing. But I keep at it and I do work the long hours and I put the effort into it because I'm motivated by the purpose. And I'm hopeful that you know, I will contribute in a positive way to, to an outcome that I'm, that I'm looking for. So it sounds like to me, drawing on your background at, in Chicago and studying philosophy, you mentioned a connectedness amongst all of us. And I'm going to venture out to play on some words here. It sounds like you're working on not V2X, but we to X. I love that. May I use that? Absolutely, because that's that's what it sounds like to me. Some way you mentioned manifestation. It sounds like you're trying to manifest a, a we to X opportunity here. That's absolutely right. Yes, the the vehicle, the V is the conduit through which we express that intention. But you're absolutely right. Beautiful, beautiful. So, David. What are some of the valuable lessons that you've learned on all these different journeys? I know I can't expect you to sum them all up in you know a few minutes here, but some that really stand out to you. By now, you've learned I don't do much in just a couple minutes. I'm a <laughs> so, 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 are you saying surprises along the way, basically? You know, surprises or valuable? Let's let's take Formata specifically. You mentioned ten years. What are some of the you know valuable one, two, three valuable lessons that have you know really leaped out on your journey? I th- I, I think. The, the, the most stunning discovery from this particular leg of the journey for me has been to realize how complex things can be. You know, different earlier career uh, efforts were complicated in their own right. But in order to succeed in business and to disrupt major industries and to bring new technologies uh, into, into life, to bring them uh, from a, an abstract concept into a, an applied reality is unbelievably complex, not just difficult. There's a lot of difficulties in life, but the complexity to have to, for example, understand the technology itself when it's a new technology, there are nuances to it 
that abound. And then when you try to superimpose the technology on a market context that's as diverse as providing backup power in the form of resilience all the way to participating in these obscure ancillary services markets in the power grid and everything in between, you have to understand the industries, you have to understand the technology, you have to create market applications. For example, most of the value streams that bidirectionally enabled vehicles will be able to provide don't exist yet, not because the, the vehicles aren't there, the storage is dispatchable, but there isn't a market mechanism that's been developed to receive those value streams and apply them where they're needed. That's the next step uh, in the emergence of vehicle to X technologies. And that's to, uh, I got to get used to calling it we to X. I, I have to work on that. But <laughs> it, it, it's really going to boil down to over time, these big industries, these big complicated industries are going to be changed and they're going to be changed by a very complicated cutting edge set of technologies embedded in vehicle to grid uh, as, as a phrase. And so the, just the sheer complexity of what, what you have to do to make an impact, I, I had no appreciation of that. Even from earlier entrepreneurial endeavors, I did not fully grasp how difficult something as disruptive and potentially impactful as um, the vehicle to grid technology is. I, I just didn't have a clue how difficult, how, how complicated it was going to be. But, you know, I, I see it now and I'm overwhelmed by it and I embrace that. Uh, I, I, I got to tell you, I've not been bored for a minute in the last 10 years. <laughs> um, I think that's my answer, though. I think the, the biggest surprise was the degree of complexity and how much of a challenge it is to overcome that. So moving on from overcoming previous challenges or complexities, what's next? What does the future hold for Formata Energy? It's 2025. What does Formata Energy look like to you there? Well, I think it'll transition beyond my skill set very quickly. Um, as an experienced entrepreneur, one of the lessons I learned along the way is that the, the personality type that is capable, that has the requisite skill set to be able to create, particularly in a new industry setting, uh, an idea and, and transform that idea into a commercial reality. It, it's a certain kind of person. You know, they have to be able, able to connect dots that other people maybe miss. They need to be um, confident enough to be able to take risks and make mistakes along an uncertain path to a, to a clear uh, destination point. And even that destination point might need to pivot from time to time based on circumstances you encounter. So, you know, being having that flow uh, unfold is, um, is is a challenge, but I see Fermata um, emerging from that with a different layer of leadership as it's now becoming commercial. Um, you know, typically entrepreneurs don't know when to get out of the way. Uh, they're the you know they're the chief cook and bottle washer from the start. It's their ego. It's their you know their their intelligence, their relationships, their their whatever characteristics they brought to the fray that dominate the business. But then the business evolves to being bigger than them, and it has to go to being a we again. It has to be the uh, the aggregate of everybody in the company. And, and the ecosystem, the market in which that company exists. That's all part of what defines uh, the successful tra trajectory of a business. And I know as an entrepreneur when to get out of the way. I've done it with each of my earlier businesses. 
And so um, I'm, I think over the next couple of years, what we'll see happen to, to Fermata is it will become a significant uh, instrument of change. As I said, there are several companies out there aspiring to do similar things to Fermata. They're going about it in different ways. You know, we'll figure out among us who, who's got it right, and we'll all uh, pivot and adapt accordingly. But I think Fermata or, or any vehicle-to-grid services provider, five years out, will be kind of like the Android of this emergent technology. We're, we're going to be operating the various elements in the technology. We're not going to you know, design and make cars, and we're not going to be, you know, we're going to use chargers, we're going to use cars, but we're going to, and we're not going to be the utilities. We're just going to be the nexus between this available dispatchable electric power and the, uh, the the customers that need that power for their different needs. And so we'll be the facilitators, we'll be the aggregators, we will be uh, the uh, the operators. And, and I think that the scalability of this business is kind of unprecedented. There are very few emergent industries that have such a huge upside potential. Um, but I think Vermont is in just such a space, and I, I'll be fascinating to watch it grow, uh, but I'll be watching it gently uh, as the years go by, partly just because I'm timing out with my age, but mostly because I'm going to step back at the right time because my skill set will be transcended by uh, by the organism, the corporate organism that I'd created. Uh, but I'll still be around to kind of gently guide it, um, you know, from that visionary perspective that the entrepreneur brings to the table. Well, that leads nicely to my next question, my last question. Speaking of evolving and change, if you could share some advice or words of wisdom with the audience, what would it be? I don't know about wisdom, but I'll take it, give it my best shot, Raj. I would say... <laughs> Maybe it's a little selfish, but I would advise people, if you're going to take on an entrepreneurial endeavor, for example, I think you want to make sure you surround yourself with very, very bright people. Um, and, and they have to be people of high integrity. I think those are the two features that make success happen versus failure. If you have people of high integrity and they're really smart, they'll figure out what to do and it'll be the right thing. And I think that good outcomes happen when you have a nice, successful melding of intent with process, but you don't get that actualized outcome unless the participants are, are noble. They're good people with good intentions, honorable intentions, and they've got to be really smart to deal with the complexities, particularly in, in these modern times where the world is expanding in its complexity with every passing day. So I that would be my you know, my nugget of, of, of counsel for what it's worth is just if you're going to be an entrepreneur, surround yourself with brilliant, uh, like-minded people with with high integrity and character. Well, David, I think that's a great place to end. Surround yourself with good people. And I feel like this conversation has allowed me to surround myself with you. So I appreciate that. And I look forward to seeing the continued success of Fermata Energy and catching up with you again soon. Thank you very much for having me on, and I really love your podcast, Raj. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. Appreciate you. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter 
where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.